Pentecost Sunday. We're going to read the entire chapter of chapter 2, starting from verse 1, wending our way to the end at verse 47. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, and blood and fire and vapor of smoke, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. 
Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. And I'll have you stand today for our gospel reading, which is taken from the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 11, reading 1 to 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock 
and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. God, our Father, as we come and as we approach your word together to hear from your holy mouth, Lord, prepare our hearts and minds even now so that we can receive the good seed of your word, that it might be planted safely and firmly in our hearts to produce 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold for your glory, a crop of righteousness, O God, in our lives. Search us, Lord, today and know us and see if there be any wicked way in us, and lead us, Lord, in the way everlasting. And now, Father, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a lot that we could say about Acts chapter two today, uh, and I'm going to focus on those first several verses to, uh, to pull out some of the uh, most meaningful uh, ideas and thoughts that come to us from this descent of the Spirit on this special day of, uh, of Pentecost. Pentecost is a new epoch for the church. Pentecost marks the, the age of the Spirit. And Jesus had been promising the Spirit to his disciples all along. In fact, in John 14, the disciples are evidently anxious that Jesus might leave them at some point. And Jesus assures them of the arrival of a helper. He calls them the spirit of truth. He's coming, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I will not leave you alone. I will send you a helper. He will come to you. He will be with you. The spirit of God. Now, The spirit of God had always been in the world. And the Spirit of God had always been with the people of God. I mean, he hovered over the creation at the beginning like this this mother hand hovering over all of that chaos and bringing order out of all that trouble of mud and water. He was the one who rushed upon the judges. He rushed upon Samson to empower him to do all those marvelous deeds. He anointed his servant David with favor and strength so that that young boy could do such great deeds. In fact, he was so present with David that you remember what David says in his 51st Psalm. After David says, does such a wicked and terrible thing, what is he so afraid of? Oh Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. The Spirit of God had always been present with the people of God. And Jesus affirms the abiding and continuing presence of the Spirit in John 14. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to send him, but you know him already. You know him. He dwells with you already, Jesus says, and he will be in you. He dwells with you now, and he will be in you to come. 
And so even though the Spirit of God had always been with the people of God, the age of Pentecost, this important period or epoch, marks the distinct presence of the Spirit that brings a special and intimate union with God. It is the Spirit of God who unites us and binds us to all of the saving benefits of Jesus Christ. That is, he not only brings us to the words of Christ, which he does, which Jesus promised. The Spirit of God unites us inseparably to Jesus. It's the Spirit of God who puts the branch into the vine. It is his active presence in us, filling us and becoming one with us, by which we have that bond to Jesus. This is why the Lord in John 3 is so adamant to that scholar who comes to him. There are those, he says, that are born of the flesh, and there are those in this life who are born of the Spirit. There are those who try to please God by their religious striving and their own religious labors. And there are those who have the very life of God in them and are so transformed that their souls are made capable of communion with God. Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. It's not enough to memorize a religious code. It's not enough to follow disciplines and to meditate and to try hard to serve your neighbor. It's not enough to read your Bible and to go to church and to do all these things. Nicodemus, you need the spirit of the living God to make you a new creature. And so there's only one way to receive the benefits of Christ's death. There's only one way to receive the righteousness of Jesus. There's only one way to pass from being spiritually dead to spiritually thriving and fruit-bearing and alive in the kingdom of God. And it's what Paul tells us in Romans 8. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. How? through the Spirit who dwells in you. And so you see how completely Christianity is a supernatural religion. At its very core, it's supernatural because there's only one way to get anything from this way of following Jesus. Any benefit whatsoever comes only through the bond of the Holy Spirit. He seals the redemption of Christ to us. And so all of the righteousness, all of the joy, all of the peace, it is only coming to us through the Holy Spirit. And so how vain then, how vain it is for us to try any work of the kingdom in ourselves or in this world, how vain to try anything by any means other than the Spirit of God. He is the only one. He is the only one that you can unite people to Jesus. Our powers of persuasion can't do it. Our marketing techniques can't do it. Our laborious efforts can't do it. And what the church needs most desperately is the effective, empowering presence of the Spirit of God. This is why Paul wasn't very impressed with the super apostles. You remember him in 1 Corinthians writing about the super apostles? They're very popular guys. Their books lined the bookstore shelves. Their churches were fat and bursting at the seams. They walked about as very, very important people. Paul says, I don't care what they talk about. 
I don't care what they seem like. I'm going to come and I'm going to find these boastful men. I want to know one thing about these guys. I want to know if they have any power. It's not that the Spirit of God doesn't use our humanity. He does. He uses our planning. He uses our administration, our methodology. He flows through all these human things. But the power to affect the goodness of the kingdom just doesn't belong to us at all. And it's just so easy in our own way, just as the Apostle Paul suspected, to be given so much to ourselves, our planning, our administration, our methodology, that we end up being devoid of the Spirit of God. And the devil comes walking in and says, Paul, I know. Jesus, I know. But who are you? Churches can become dead. Churches become arid and they become barren places without that waft of the supernatural, without that wind of the Spirit of God that is the only thing that can unite us to the riches of Christ. And so Jesus comes now in Acts 1-4, just before chapter 2, and he bids his disciples to wait for the promise of the Father. I mean, they'd seen so many wonderful things. They saw an empty tomb. They saw Jesus risen again. He had been with them now for 40 days, eating with them, teaching them all about the kingdom of God. And you can imagine how excited, how pumped, how stoked these disciples were. I mean, they were ready to go. We've been taught now for an extra 40 days. We're ready to go, Lord. But Jesus has to come to them and he says, wait. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. He says, what I am sending you out to do, it isn't in your power to do this at all. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, when he comes, you will receive dynamite. And then, and only then, you will be my witnesses. And then you're going to go to all the four corners of the globe. And then when you speak, it won't be you just transmitting data to people. It won't be you just downloading ideas and facts to them, but the word of God will come and it will penetrate hearts. And the secrets of men's hearts will be exposed and disclosed and the spirit of God will transform lives, uniting men and women and children to me. You can't do this. The spirit of God comes and can do that. And so wait, he says, wait for the promise. Wait for the power. Wait for the Spirit of God. And so then we have this incredible treasury of Acts chapter 2. And we could spend so much time here looking at this chapter alone, but I simply want to point out three important features that we see in these opening verses of Acts 2 that, that characterize the life of the Spirit that Jesus promises. First of all, we read that the Spirit of God descends as a mighty rushing wind. Now, I'm one of those guys who loves the wind. I love blustery days. There's some, I had a friend once who just couldn't, couldn't handle the wind. It, it irritated him for whatever reason. I love blustery days. Not so much in the winter, but on a summer day down by the ocean or out in the, in the springtime. And I just like to open my arms up, you know, on the ferry. Not like, not like uh, I feel like uh, Leonardo da Vinci right now, but not, not on the boat like that, but you're, you're, you're Leonardo DiCaprio, I'm sorry. You're, your arm's going to open up wide, just feeling the rush of the wind. It makes me feel alive. And there are many analogies that we could draw between the wind 
and the Spirit. But the most scripturally appropriate idea here in Acts 2 is that the wind is not controlled. Have you ever tried to capture the wind? On a windy day, you just kind of try and... I mean, I've never tried that, but I can imagine trying that. Just trying to capture, taking a bottle and corking it and watching the wind capture it, swirl around in its fury. You can't do it. Remember those days as a child when you'd be out in the field with your kite, and all of a sudden the wind drops and your kite just falls to the ground, helpless and forlorn on the ground. And there's nothing you can do to make the wind start up again. There's no button you can push. There's no lever you can pull. You are at the mercy of the will of the wind. And until it decides to blow again, you remain grounded and helpless without any other power to do what you want to do. And so here in Acts 2, even though they are waiting for the promise, the wind we read comes suddenly. The Spirit of God comes at his own pleasure. He doesn't arrive after some magical incantation that they pronounce. They don't manipulate him or coerce him. He doesn't command or or come at their beck and call at their timetable. No, the Spirit of God will not be controlled. He comes as the wild and the free and the untamable wind of God at his own pleasure, in his sovereign power. He comes as the sovereign Lord, the very breath of the sovereign God. You see, the Spirit doesn't come as a power that we can use, but he comes as God, very God, to use us for his purposes. And how needful it is for us to always remember that the Spirit of God will not be tamed. The Spirit of God will not be controlled. He will not go where we wish him to go. But as Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, and you don't know where it's going. The Holy Spirit is the free and the living God. And there are certain things that the Spirit always does. There are things that he will always do so that we may discern his genuine presence. In particular, the Holy Spirit will always direct us to Christ. He will always point us to the words of Christ. The Spirit, as Dr. Packer says, is the great spotlight on Jesus. He does not come to draw attention to himself. He does not come to say, hey, look at me, or hey, look at him, or hey, look at her. He always comes to turn our eyes to Jesus. He will glorify me, Jesus says in John 16, for he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. And it's important to remember That if you come across anyone who claims a special connection to the Spirit of God, that they're operating in the Spirit, and their speech and their revelation is conspicuously devoid of the person and the words of Jesus, then do not put any stock in what they say and turn the other way and walk away as fast as you can. Because the most charismatic person, the person most filled with the Spirit, is the one from whose presence you walked away, charged with the sense of the glory and of the riches of Jesus. This the Spirit will always do. That is his purpose. When the Helper comes, he will bear witness about me. But how he does it and where he does it, and when he does it, and in whom he does it, 
These things belong to him. He is the free Lord. He's not to be bargained with. He will not be coerced. He is not going to be manipulated. He will be rather waited upon that he might do all things in his good pleasure and in his own way. He comes as a wind. Secondly, the Spirit of God comes as tongues of fire, we read. He comes not only as the free and the untamable Lord, but he also comes as the purging fire. He is the Holy Spirit. He is the consuming fire of Hebrews 12. He is the fire of Psalm 97 that burns up all the enemies of the Lord that oppose his righteous rule. And when the Spirit of God comes upon us, he comes upon us not only with power to equip, but he comes upon us with fire to purge the dross of our lives. It's not a baptism of holiness that brings a perfect and complete holiness with it. We've heard a lot of that in days past that what you need is the baptism, right? You just come and you come to the Lord and you get filled and all of a sudden you're made a perfectly straight being. No sins left. That's not what the scripture is talking about at all. It's not that baptism that brings perfect holiness, not instantaneous perfection. It's not something that happens at once. But the Lord, the Holy Spirit, introduces us to a life of godliness. That will take a long time. Thomas Goodwin, the great uh, Puritan theologian, says, My brethren, this life of the means of grace, this life of praying and reading the Bible and going to church and fellowshipping with one another, the means of grace by which we are made holy, this life is a dull furnace, he says. Our lusts melt slowly. Now, if you're anything like me, you'd rather have a quick blast in the furnace. Just put me in there, turn up to max, give me five minutes in there, and just melt everything away at once. But the reality is that we're given to this lifelong pursuit of holiness, which will take our whole life long. And so we shouldn't be discouraged today at our slightness of progress, but we must make progress in the way of holiness if we are to be a people of the Spirit. Our lives must demonstrably be improving if we are the people of God. He is the Holy Spirit. He is the flame of God upon our lives. Our lives must be getting better if we belong to Jesus. And so there is no man and there is no woman who lives in willful, mindful, unchangeful, wakeful, continual sin who belongs to the Spirit of God. That just doesn't happen. No one born of God, we read, makes a practice of sinning. No one born of God, we read, makes a practice of sinning. If the love of the world is taking precedence in your heart, then the love of the Father is not in you. But if you belong to God today, then I can safely say that the tongue of fire rests upon you, and it is even now burning up the enemies of the gospel within you, and it may seem torturously slow, but you are being refined today. You're being cleansed. You're being purified. You are being made a trophy of the Lord's grace. And therefore, it's crucial that all of us, as we read in Hebrews 12, Strive for holiness. 
Strive for holiness, without which no man can see the Lord. We are a people of the fire. We are a people of the flame. This is what we do. And finally, the Spirit of God comes to undo all the fragmentation of sin. The Age of Grace, as, the, uh, as Luke describes it for us today, is juxtaposed against the Age of Babel. The Age of the Spirit, the Age of the Church, is, is contrasted with that uh, passage that we find in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, sinful humanity decides to band together to make a name for itself to build a tower that will stretch up to heaven and proclaim the merit and the fame of man. Let us make a name for ourselves, they said. Let us build something to promote the honor and the worth of man. And the result of that project is Babel. It's confusion. It's fragmentation, it's dispersion. I mean, it's the history of the world. Man's preoccupation with himself has always and is always and always will divide and fragment and confuse. It will always produce Babel. It's nation against nation. It's kingdom against kingdom. And all of the attempts of the world to create world unity only exacerbates the problem because the focus is the honor and the fame and the wealth and the worth and the merit of man. Let us make a name for ourselves, they say. And that ascending tower that rises up towards the heaven will always result in confusion and dispersion and deep fragmentation. It is the wasteland in Eliot's words. But the age of the spirit, the age of the church is not man going up, but it's God coming down. It is God coming down by his spirit, by his living presence and making us aware not of man's excellence and fame, but making us aware of the mighty works of God. We here proclaim to us the mighty works of God, they said. The age of the Spirit directs us properly to God's fame, to God's honor, and to God's surpassing excellence. And you'll notice the result. It's the exact opposite of what happens in Babel. The age of the church isn't marked by confusion of languages, but it's marked by understanding. We hear. We hear in our own native language. We hear what's going on. We understand what's being said. The sign of the kingdom is the sign of comprehension. And it's not marked now by dispersion and fragmentation as in Babel, but rather it's marked by the union of the people, a great gathering together of various people groups. 3,000 souls are added to the one church of Christ, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and so on. And so in this fragmented world, in this fragmented Babel that we now live in, there is only one hope of unity, and it's the church. It's the church filled with the Spirit, boldly pointing men and women and children with gospel clarity to the all-surpassing fame and excellence of God. The one hope is that the church of God filled with the Spirit, can intelligibly proclaim the mighty works of God. The one hope for Kelowna is that the church of God can intelligibly proclaim the mighty works of God, not seven tips for a productive life. 
Not some warm and fuzzy stories that make us chuckle and smile. Not an anemic and general message of love. Hey, let's just love one another and all get along. None of that. But only what Richard Hooker, that great Anglican divine, pointed us to 500 years ago when he said this, we care for no other knowledge in the church but this. We care for no knowledge but this, that man hath sinned and God hath suffered, that God hath made himself the sin of men and that men are made the righteousness of God. That is the only message that can change the world. And so my brothers and sisters, we have this great and adventurous task ahead of us. God give us grace to be a true people of the Spirit, to bow before the winsome and majestic freedom of God, to embrace the fire of his purging and burning presence, and to boldly proclaim the only message that will do this world any good, that man hath sinned and God has suffered. God give us grace to do this together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.